This is the Unraveled Podcast with hosts Caleb Aring and Nicole Richards. Join us as we unravel a new case every season. You are listening to Season 1, The Nightmare in Ada. I'm Caleb Aring. I'm Nicole Richards. And you're listening to Unraveled. When we left off last week, we were just about to the end of Tommy and Carl's trial. And we promised you this week we would talk to you about the closing arguments that were just set to happen and the verdict. So where we left off was the end of testimony. And after testimony ended, uh, that was 10.22 in the morning, the jury left the courtroom. And then Carl Fontenot's attorney, George Butner, made a motion to the judge that acquittal should be granted because it hadn't been sufficiently proven that a crime had taken place. And right away, the judge overrules that. And so now the jury is off to lunch. And when they come back is when the closing arguments are going to start. They get back. The judge takes about 20 minutes to give instructions. And closing arguments don't start until 3 o'clock, 3.04 to be exact, uh, on that day. Nicole, tell us a little bit more about that. So, yeah, it's about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and we're now going to get sort of the end of the trial. This is sort of the dramatic closing arguments that makes me think of what we see on television when you see courtroom uh, dramas, that now we're going into this moment that both sides have an, an opportunity to really kind of close the case here. And so it starts with Bill Peterson. He is, he goes first. He gets up and he is um, very typical of Bill Peterson. He's very methodical in what he presents. He goes back and he starts with the very first witness that they've called and he proceeds to, for the jury, just go from witness to witness to witness. He um, is cites at length the police and detective work that was done. He goes into kind of systematically discrediting what the defense has come up with, and you know, and he gets really, really inflammatory in the things that he's saying. So you might recall when we talked about opening statements, I mentioned that in an opening statement, uh, attorneys are talking about what they're going to prove, who who they're planning on calling, what information they're planning on bringing out in the actual trial. They're not allowed to make any arguments. They're only allowed to talk about the facts that are going to come out in the trial. But the closing arguments are called arguments for a reason, and that's because the lawyers are permitted to argue. They're permitted to make leaps from what was said in trial to what that means. They don't have to just stick to the facts. This is where they throw in their arguments, and their arguments are kind of the glue that hold the facts together to make whatever story it is that they are selling to the jury. And here we see we see Bill Peterson using really inflammatory language. He talks about the confession tapes at one point, and he says, was it a dream to Denise or a living nightmare? Like, really just kind of taking Tommy's words and just throwing them in the trash and saying, clearly this wasn't a dream. Like, this is her nightmare, uh, what they did to her. And there's a lot of instances where he's using this sort of, of language to really 
inflame the jury to agree with him. Absolutely. And even, you know, he goes after the testimony of the private investigator and he's calling him a crime fighter and Dick Tracy in disguise. You know, he really just, he gets sarcastic, he gets inflammatory, and this is their opportunity to do that. This is their opportunity. It's why it's used in courtroom dramas. It's this opportunity to sort of uh, just get out there and put a show on for the jury and really say whatever you'd like, use a lot of sarcasm, you know, definitely implying that the the two murderers were in the room, they're in the courtroom right now and staring at Tommy and Carl, just very, very dramatic. And the thing is with his closing argument, it goes on for hours and hours. And that to me is is something that just pings automatically for me is that Here, this starts at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and the jury is not allowed a break until quarter to 9 at night. At 8.45 that night, they finally get a short break after Bill Peterson is done talking. So if you can imagine being a jury, sitting here listening to somebody giving a closing argument from 3 o'clock in the afternoon until... 8.45 8.45 at night. No breaks, no nothing. You just have to sit and listen to this individual go on and on. That, to me, is is one of the craziest parts of his closing argument. Well, and what's even worse to me is worse than sitting through that closing argument until almost 9 o'clock at night is who goes up after that. Because you lost your attention span way before that. Um, but then the crazy thing is they get a break. They get a break. Not they go home for the night and come back the next morning. They get a break and they come back at 9 o'clock at night. And who's still paying attention or listening? And I I don't know what the laws or the rules are in that court. If there was some reason that, uh, that George Butner and Don Wyatt, the attorneys for Tommy and Carl didn't ask for a continuance until the next day uh, because that's what I would have done. There's there's no jury going to be paying any more attention at that point, uh, but they didn't. Whether it was because they didn't think to or whether there was some law or issue in, in that court that didn't allow them to, they kept going, right? So yeah. who went up and after the impression the is, I mean, often the impression, too, with this trial is that this was a criminal trial that had gone on longer than anybody had anticipated already. It was, I really feel like there was this sense from the judge and from the court that they just wanted to get through this. And I think that there are these little ways of which we see that there. Um, maybe it wasn't being outright like, hey, we're not stopping because we want to get through this or there's no law saying that we have to. To keep going, but there was this sense that people really wanted to kind of move this along, and I think we see that with the closing arguments, and which I understand. But I mean, we're talking but you've about you've lost people. You've lost. We're people. talking about two kids in their early twenties facing death row. Not just death row. I mean, ultimately, death row is execution. So and in two, Oklahoma, it's execution, right? It's like yeah. this is not. They're not going to sit on death row for years and years and years. It's it's this is this is going to be an imminent fate for them if this is if this goes that way. And so I understand that you know you don't want to take another day when people have already put in eleven days. But we're talking about two young people's lives, not you know what to buy at the grocery store or something trivial. Like, this is really important. Uh, but for whatever reason, they kept that going. break doesn't happen. <laughs> so after the break... So after that, we second up, we're going to have Butner, who is Carl Fontenot's attorney. So, you know, 
Bunner's first kind of line is that he goes on to re- note that three people have named Tommy Ward as being at the scene, but yet nobody has named Carl Fontenot. And so he really, he comes out where he initially tries to separate the two of them. They are being tried together, but this is a moment where we really see that he is Carl Fontenot's attorney. He is trying to give this brief moment of, hey, you know, Maybe Tommy has been named three times, but Carl has actually never been named. And so he starts there. He then really goes after the fact that there's no evidence. You know, there's no weapon, there's no body, there's no truck, um, that we just are not seeing any evidence in this case. And he really kind of point by point brings that up, that there's no evidence. Um, He then goes on to talk about the tapes, you know, and he just kind of comes out and basically says, he's quoted as saying, two good confessions can cure a lot of incompetent investigation. And I thought that was, you know, he just really tried to discredit the tapes, saying, sure, that's what these are, but nothing around, the investigation doesn't back up these tapes, that there isn't any physical evidence, that the investigators haven't been able to find anything, and that the reason that is is because they have these tapes and that the detectives just sort of didn't do their jobs, basing it on the fact that these confession tapes existed. And he really took issue with the time that, they were that Tommy was questioned and that Carl was questioned that is not taped right if we remember Tommy was questioned for hours um that was not on that tape you know there's a if the tape is short it's at the very end of the day they had spent together um and the same thing for Carl there's a whole period of time that was not taped and he took he took issue with that and he kind of left his closing argument where he just really urged there to be separate consideration for Carl you know i think Butner had to rely very heavily on the work of Don Wyatt's office and Don Wyatt's investigator that was being paid for by the Wyatt, by the um, Ward family. And this was his moment where his one kind of line of defense was, hey, I'm, you know, I'm Carl's attorney, and I'm really asking for them to be considered separately. Because though they are being tried together, you know, it's six counts that are on the table. It's it's three for each of them, and that the jury could go guilty for one and not guilty for the other. So that's kind of how he left it. And his closing argument only lasts 30 minutes, which... You know, when I think of that in terms of how long Bill Peterson has spoken, you know, we've, we're talking multiple, multiple hours, and then Butner gets up and talks for 30 minutes and really just kind of says, hey, Carl was never identified. Let's let's separate him from this. Well, and, it, you know, it's a tricky thing. I don't know if it's because he had nothing more to say about it or if it was strategic, right? Because, um, you know, like we said going on for hours and hours and hours like the they probably lost the jury long before that and the district attorney had these confession tapes like he probably didn't need hours of a closing argument to convince people you know what happened mm-hmm. um he i think could have rehashed the trial much more easily and perhaps george butner's thought process was i'm going to keep this short and sweet I'm only going to hit the high points to make sure that the jury hears those important things and to make sure that I don't lose their attention uh, before I get to those high points. Or it could have been, well, I don't know what else to say. 
um, which may have been part of it, right? You know, you and I talked about if we are to assume that these two are actually innocent, then they are the most useless kind of defendant, the most useless kind of client you can ever get because they're not going to tell you anything that's going to be helpful. Um, But what he should have done is really harp on maybe one or two of those most, I guess, likely stories out of the many that the investigator came up with and try to build those seeds of doubt. If you have some strong evidence for a likely alternate scenario, you know, you want to plant those seeds. And if we go back to our example last week where, you know, it was really simplistic, but I mentioned if we were at a party together and I had left my wallet on the table and you were standing at the table and then I look again and my wallet's gone. Um, But let's say then one of our other friends comes forward and says, hey, I saw Nicole in the kitchen since you put your wallet down, but I saw Johnny pacing back and forth by that table for 20 minutes. Well, then that 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 creates that seed of that doubt, doubt, that, that we're, reasonable we're doubt, for, yeah. where I say, well, gosh, it, it could have been Nicole, but I don't know if I have a strong enough conviction that it was Nicole to say 100%, because now I'm finding out she walked away and Johnny was there. But if I say, well, yeah, there's there's 20 other people at this party, though. Right. And and that's what the investigator's testimony kind of was. It was like, yeah, but there's 20 other people at this party. Um, so that closing argument really should have honed in on one or two of, of lo- those reasonable scenarios. Absolutely. And, and the, the good thing is that the next, you know, after Butner is Don Wyatt. And Diane Wyatt does exactly that. Don Wyatt... And, and I don't know, I, I think, you know, Butner's closing argument is very much like Carl's presence in the trial. You know, we just don't see hear a lot from Carl. We don't, you know, he's just kind of this silent individual in this. He's he There isn't a lot of information of what was going on with him. He's stoic all of the time in the, in the court proceedings. He, and I think his attorney, you know, is not a seasoned attorney in the way that Don Wyatt is. It, we're talking about two different individuals for sure, but... You know, so the third up in the closing arguments is Don Wyatt, and he does exactly that. He comes so, out real quick before we get into what Don Wyatt actually said. What what time is it now? Because we've had, you know, we didn't even start this last argument until I think about nine. So we're probably at about nine thirty, nine forty-five at night at this point. And remember, even though closing arguments didn't start until three in the afternoon court that day started at about nine o'clock in the morning. Right. So these jurors, with the exception of a, of a few breaks and a lunch break, these jurors have now been there for over 12 hours. And right. this is the 11th day. Right. So they've been there for over 12 hours on this 11th day of hearing testimonies. Right. So, so I mean, when Don Wyatt gets up, we're going now into 930. And you're right. It's we're past 12 hours and they now have to listen to Don Wyatt who, you know, and we're still not done. Like we have Don Wyatt and then we're going to go into another, you know, the assistant DA. It's like the night just kind of keeps going and and yeah, it's late at this point. I mean, to keep a jury's attention when they've been in court for over 12 hours, I just feel like is insanity. But Don Wyatt gets up and he first focuses on this i this 
information that was presented during the trial that is claiming that Ward and Fontenot had short hair and that there are pictures that prove it. There were Polaroids that were brought up in court from Jeanette that sort of shows them with shorter hair. It was around um, Easter. It was earlier than when um, Denise had gone missing. And, you know... The DA's office discredited these photos immediately because the dates were written on pen on the on the bottom of the Polaroid. And but Don Wyatt brings them back up, and he he really kind of brings back and says, you know, that this was that Jeanette is a reliable witness, and that these pictures are reliable, and that these people do not look like the people that were in the composite sketches. So he goes on into that, and then he talks about the tapes. You know, immediately talks about the tapes. And he, he admits that they're gruesome, you know, that these were gruesome accounts of what happened. He said that these are terrible to listen to, but that they're also not true. And he his theory is that during Tommy's questioning on October 12th, which was his first questioning with the police, it wasn't um, taped. The whole thing was not taped. And it was where he agreed to take a lie detector test. And, and Don Wyatt's theory is that on that questioning they planted this kind of story in Tommy's head and that on the 18th that he had been programmed to sort of elaborate on this dream that he had had and he just sort of he just kind of goes after police work and he goes after that these confessions are highly suspect, he says. He reviews the pressure techniques that was used by the police. He talks about the bones being brought in that don't belong to the police. He talks about... But you about, also have to remember, like, this is really, really great stuff for a closing argument, especially in the 80s. But we're also talking about, you know, 1984. I think that... Uh, there was much, much less research around, like, false confessions and the psychology behind them. So in that sense, like, Don Wyatt is kind of, like, a maverick here with this. He's coming in with this idea that, like, people give false confessions, and I don't really think that that was something that... I mean, I think even in this day and age, people still don't really believe that that's true in, in large part. But back then, I don't think that you could even get, like... A professional like um, Jim Trainum to testify in a hearing and say, "Yeah, this is a real thing. This is how it's done, and this is what it results in." So all you have there is Don Wyatt saying, "Look, these these methods that were used aren't reliable to pull out real confessions." And I think that's really amazing that like he was he was doing that argument. You know, we don't see George Butner making that argument for Carl, who yeah, nobody identified him. But he still confessed to it. Um, and so I think that's that's really incredible for And him. I think from our perspective of seeing that he's doing it is great. I think he is saying, he's coming right after out and saying, these tapes are not reliable. They're gruesome, but they're not true. And that the police did some terrible police work, used some terrible techniques, and really broke these individuals and got them to confess. But then I also put myself in the position of a jury, and I wonder, you know, how does that land with a jury during a time where you're right, false confessions were not something that was... Be- there wasn't... I can think of multiple books I've read over the years about false confessions, right? And th- this time, there wasn't that information. And so for a jury, does that land as like, 
maybe, sure, do we, is that true? Or does it land as this attorney is grasping at straws? Like, this attorney is making it sound like there's false confessions and that doesn't actually exist, you know? And it's hard to know how that lands on the jury. Although I feel like he doesn't have a choice, right? No. Either either he argues that there are false confessions. He has or, to do it. He has to do it, absolutely. But it might not, it may or may not be landing with the right, jury. Right, but I think, I think of myself as a jury during that time and I think, what, how is this landing? And I wonder if it makes him sound crazy right like if people are like oh this attorney went on about false confessions and it's just you know it's out there but who knows and so he does that he also goes and he talks about um he defends the private investigator that he had and he he doesn't go into great detail about these you know the investigator got up and gave multiple other possible scenarios but he does go in after one and he says that he connects it to this man who is an individual that the PA that the private investigator had named. He's also an individual who has a truck that is identical to this gray and red primer truck, right? And he says during the closing argument, I am not saying that this man is guilty. I'm not saying that this man did this. What I'm saying is, is that my investigator pulled up a name and an individual who is connected to Ada, who is connected to possibly these people, and also has a gray and red primer truck, which is what we keep hearing about, and is actually more possible since Tommy and Carl have never had access to a truck. And so he just is trying to at least take one of the stories that the private investigator had talked about and say, hey, Here's another person. Just, if we're going to throw names in a hat, why not this person? Why can't we look at him as well? And it's an, it's an opportunity to really just kind of, like you said, still put in that seed of doubt because it's all we're trying to do. The state had to prove that it happened, and really the defense is just trying to say it's not a 100% deal. It's a, it's it's There's a great chance that this didn't go this way. And so... He, he stops on Tommy's alibi. You know, Tommy has an alibi. They, they tried to discredit her, and they tried to confuse that she was not clear on what days we were talking about. They tried to discredit her by her finding out that she was in school when she said she wasn't in school, you know. But she has an al- he has an alibi, and so he revisited that, and, and that was it. He, he, he finished up. He, only, he talked for 45 minutes, not much longer than Butner, um, but again, under an hour, you know, and I think you're right. Is It may be a tactic worth worth using. I, I don't think that um, Dennis Smith kept the attention of the jurors for six-plus hours, right? Uh, Bill Peterson. Bill Peterson, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, yeah, I mean, it may be a tactic. Even if he hadn't have planned on that tactic originally, I would think that he would have switch to it because at that point I mean he's starting I think we said he started around 9.30 maybe even a little bit later than that yeah 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 it was a little yeah going into 9.30 and um, even if he had planned out a two or three hour closing argument it wouldn't be smart to do that that late at night um, because you're already losing their attention right Uh, and so I don't know what he did have originally planned, but definitely I think going for an argument that's under an hour is what you need to do in this circumstance because those jurors, they're they're not not listening anymore. Right. And so now they're given a short break. Um, Again, we're not looking at wrapping the night up, but they're given a short break. We're now after 10 o'clock at night. Um, They come back, you know, it's past 10, 
They are still they still have another closing argument to hear from, and now they hear from Chris Ross. And who, so before we talk about Chris Ross, who is the assistant district attorney, I want to just talk for a minute about the structure of closing arguments. So the way that they work is the district attorney, because they have the burden of proof, they get the first and the last word. So they get to start with their closing argument first, and then the defense attorney goes. And usually that's going to be one single person. In this particular case, there are two because we have two defendants who are being tried together. And then after that, the district attorney is allowed a rebuttal argument where they are allowed to come up and rebut everything that the defense attorney, or in this case, attorneys, said. And that rebuttal argument is really supposed to be focused only on anything that was brought up by George Butner or by Don Wyatt, uh, because it's rebuttal. It's there for them to rebut. And you know, it's it's interesting that the reason they get this is because the burden of proof is on them, um, and that's how our law is set up. I know uh, I had a professor once tell me that a really seasoned criminal attorney um, that he knew, and this professor was also a criminal attorney, um, he asked him once, if you could have anything at all in a trial, what would it be? And he his answer was the last word, because that really makes a difference on the jurors, what they hear last and what sticks out for them. Uh, But unless you have a district attorney who doesn't take advantage of that rebuttal, and I can't imagine a district attorney like that, uh, you as a defense attorney are never going to have the last word with the jury. And I think that that impacts it. And I think they were, you know, the district attorney's office was smart in this because they sent in Chris Ross and Chris Ross is now you, you have, it's, it's, Late into the night, you have, you know, one juror that we know of was on the, one juror was over 70 years old, right? You have, you have some individuals who are just worked and they send in Chris Ross and he, he comes in and he is full of theatrics, right? I mean, he, he knows that this is the last word. He knows that this is going to close this case down. And I think of myself, if I've listened to a sea of information over the course of many, many, many hours. And now, days. We're many days. I mean, if we think about it, it's, it's, we're going into late into the night and closing arguments started at three in the afternoon. We're, oh, we're headed towards 12 hours of closing arguments, right? And if I, if I know that going, if I have all that information swimming in my head and this man comes up and does his theatrical closing show, like that is going to be the thing that's going to be left in my brain when I'm done. Mm. And that's what I'm going to leave with for the end of the night. And so they really, he just comes in and he, he comes to the center of the courtroom and he just starts with this very kind of powerful closing argument. And he first starts with, he goes right after the fact that there's no evidence and he just sort of discredits that quickly. I think in a, in a, he is stated as saying, quote, we are not to reward criminals for their stealth. And I thought that's a, that's an amazing tactic, right? It's like, he's saying, sure, there's no evidence, but there is no evidence, not because of bad police work, not because of bad investigation work. It's because are these criminals have done a great job in hiding any evidence, right? So he just sort of goes for it with the theatrics. And 
he talks about Fontenot and he is very sarcastic about the hair being darker and points out that his hair is darker now since he's been in jail for some months. Notice that his natural hair color is very dark since he's not in the sun. He discredits Odell. You know, we have to remember that Odell was brought up to basically badmouth the police and say that he was used and as trying to gather information that the police weren't able to get. And that he was also pressured to, you know, kind of get these two to admit to something that they had done. And and he just kind of goes on about how he's a con and he's a criminal and um, he just discredits him immediately. He discredits the Polaroids that Jeanette used, and, and he does it by discrediting Jeanette. He doesn't say that the Polaroids are not good. It's just he talks about her credibility and that she isn't a reliable witness, and she has problems, and she has a peppered past, and he just kind of goes after that. He, he goes after the private investigator, calling him a hired gun, and but he came to court loaded with blanks, he says. You know, it's just very, like, one by one, he just sort of is insulting and kind of sarcastic, and he goes from person to person. But then he tells the he retells the rape and murder of Denise in vivid, horrific detail. He uses a lot of um, difficult language. He really, at this point, there is information about the, the court at that point that, you know, people were seen crying. They had to leave the courtroom. He just really... And I think that that, that sort of thing is one of the most powerful things that you can do in a closing argument because it creates so much emotion and the jury wants someone punished for what happened. They want to see someone punished. And what they have in front of them are two people who have confessed to doing these things. And they're filled with this emotion. And it sounds like, you know, we don't have tapes of this, but it sounds like he did a really good job of just repainting this this vivid image and probably taking you know what was even very difficult for us to put on tape and try to make those tapes make sense but taking those tapes and making them make sense in a really powerful and emotional way that left the jury wanting to punish someone for what happened yeah and i think he he systematically jumps through these things that maybe were planning doubt in the jury, and he just knocks them down. He knocks, but he knocks them down with sarcasm. He knocks them down with this kind of authoritative n- nature of like, oh, she's a, she's unreliable. He's a con. Just kind of boom, 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 and then goes into vivid detail of this horrific crime. And yeah, I think it it evoked exactly what he wanted from the jury. You have an exhausted jury who is like. Okay, maybe, and then let's let's get them with this emotion. And so he goes on to that. You know, he 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 gives that detail, and then he says, after saying this, this uh, recounting these confession tapes, he says convictions wouldn't. You know, he says that a conviction he would be a very small step indeed when you consider they've already told you they did it. So he even tells them. You know, it's not a it's not a reach here. We're not we're not asking you to move mountains with this verdict. This is a very small task that we're asking you. All we're asking you is to find them guilty on something that they've already admitted to doing. He kind of points out, you know, they already said they did it. This is a small job for you guys. You don't need to make it a bigger deal, you know? And 
He goes on to talk about also there was some question around this case of why when if Tenny Lenny Timmons saw Denise leaving McAnally's, why she didn't stop Lenny on the walkout and say this person is taking me against my will. You know, that was something that kept coming up and coming up and he addressed that and he he said, you know, well how would she know he wasn't in on it too? And he just kind of Anything, anything that would place a little bit of doubt in the jury's mind, he sort of went after. And then to end things, he went on this theory that I found to be really bizarre. And when, when I had first heard about this, this kind of this note that he ended on, I was like, why would, why would he bring this up? It's so far out there in turn, and how why, what I'm thinking of to bring up in a in a closing conf- a closing statement, but he does, and he goes on to this theory that he has about the confessions, and he thinks that Tommy's confession tape, where he keeps men- mentioning Odell, is that Odell is actually Tommy's alter ego. (laughs) And it's just this sort of... This theory that he has, he he kind of, you know, points out that, that when Tommy is talking about Odell, Tommy and Odell are never there at the same time. That... Tommy goes back to the house while Odell is doing something else. When he comes back, Odell is gone. And I think it's just far out there. I don't know why he brought it up. It feels confusing to me. I don't know if it was his opportunity to just sort of, you know, put his own personal stamp on this case. I'm not really sure. But that's how he that's how he ends it. He ends it with this emotional high. I don't think it even matters that he brought up this weird theory. The theory seems bizarre to me when I read about it, but... He does it, and his closing argument is about an hour and 15 minutes long, and that's it. When he's done, it's kind of this emotional tie at the end, and it's now about, it's now past midnight when he's finished, and the jury is allowed to go on a break. And that's just a break. I mean, they're not even going home yet. They're not even done for the night at this point, so... What ha- what's still left to do after the break? Well, they're sent from the judge. Once everybody's done with the closing arguments, the jury sends them and says, you know, you are now, you need to choose a foreman, which will be the person who will speak for the jury. And, and that's what they do. They come back after a short break. They confirm that they have, in fact, chosen a foreman. And then they ask to retire for the night. And they request to retire for the night. You know, this, I don't know how long this would have went on, um, but they they request to please go on a break. The foreman has been chosen and that they will start their deliberation the following morning. And the judge grants that. Exactly. And they're done for the night, finally. Finally. After this really long day, what ultimately ended up being about 15, 16 hours, the jury comes back the next morning at 9 a.m. The judge only gave them a break until 9 a.m. So they come back the next morning, and they went straight into deliberations. So they go into their own room by themselves, and they deliberate. They talk about what happened in the case. And while the jury is deliberating, they are permitted to make requests. A lot of times, juries might ask to see evidence again, or 
So during the hearing, there's a court reporter who takes notes of uh, word for word everything that's being said. So sometimes they'll ask to see the uh, transcript of a particular witness's testimony. Uh, but this this jury, about an hour into their deliberations, makes three specific requests of the judge. Yeah. And they ask for, and they ask for these things to be brought to the jury room. They ask for all the exhibits to be brought in, except for the skull and bones, which were not actually Denise's, but the skull and bones that were still shown. Um, they want a magnifying glass, and they would also like to review the tapes with no one present so they can discuss them while they're being watched. So immediately the judge denies the magnifying glass because he doesn't have one. And he also says that it he's not sure if it would even be right to be because it was never it was never shown it was never used during the trial. So you can't my understanding is that you can't request something that wasn't actually used during the trial. And I don't think that's correct. Um, you definitely can't request evidence that wasn't provided during the trial. But a magnifying glass to look more closely at evidence that was provided during the trial, seems to me to be completely proper. Either way, they didn't have one. He also said he didn't think it would be appropriate, and none of the attorneys argued that matter, so they never did get the magnifying glass. It's not clear whether or not they got all of the exhibits, but I do believe they did, in fact, get all of the exhibits. However, they asked to look at the tapes again, the confession tapes, And there was an issue where the judge was worried that if they only saw part of it, it would magnify just that part of the confessions and not the rest of it. Um, And there was some arguments between the attorneys to the judge about whether or not the jury should be permitted to see the tapes again. And George Butner was very much against it. Uh, Bill Peterson, the district attorney, really wanted them to see the tapes again. And... You know, I I think George Butner's concern was really that if they watched these tapes again, they would see the number of similarities. But I, I don't think that's true. And and this is just me, you know, twenty, thirty years later, making guesses. But I think that if they assumed that the tapes were the same that they would have felt good about that with the other evidence they'd also received. My thought, when a jury makes a quick decision, I think they're usually convicting. If they take their time and really look at things, it's because they have doubt. And so I think that looking at those tapes would have been because the jury had doubt about how those tapes actually stacked up. Nonetheless, Butner fought against it, and... But I feel like the tapes... I feel like the t- not showing the tapes makes sense, in the t- you know, in many for many reasons. And I also feel like I have the opposite reaction to the jury seeing those tapes again, now by themselves, in a room where they can play it over and over again. Because I think to myself, the emotional impact of those tapes, whether or not... They are going through it with a fine-tooth comb to see if they match or if they're different stories. Sure, it would be great to assume that that's what they're doing with the tapes, but I feel like that emotional impact that was there where you are hearing these gory details of what they did to this woman's body, I think could have done more damage. You know, it could have been seen as, yeah, okay, we want to watch these tapes again and because we really 
want to hear what they have to say. And I, I would hope that they would be able to be objective and look at it and say, okay, these are not matching up. But my fear would have been that of what I think Butner's fear was, which is like, they are going to get emotionally overwhelmed with this and they're going to just go, they're going to make a decision from that place. Though I would say, regardless of who you think, what side would be helped by the jury looking at these tapes again, you know, I, I don't know the law specifically around this, but I believe that constitutionally they should be allowed to do that. They should be allowed to look over and over again at the evidence that was presented to them, the evidence that is all that they have to decide whether or not these two young men are going to have their lives taken away by the government. Yeah. You know, that they have the right to do that. But nonetheless... The jury, the the judge denied them. And they asked for it again. The jury, they were denied, and then they asked, they came back at one point to check in, and they asked for it again. The The jury asked again to see the tapes, and again the judge said no. So it was something that was really on their mind, um... That's you know that this jury wanted to see these tapes again, but they were they were denied. And the jury gets brought back in, so the judge can find out if they have reached a verdict. And you know they come in at another point, and they they say no. They're brought in. I think it's around four in the afternoon. They say no, we haven't reached a verdict. It is brought out that they have reached a verdict on at, at least one of the counts, but not all of the counts. Um, and they aren't gridlocked. They aren't stuck in a place where they believe they'll never be able to agree. They just believe that they need more time. So the judge sends them away and tells them to keep deliberating. Yeah, and at about, you know, at a, going into be about 6 o'clock that evening, they come back again. They, they say that they don't have a verdict again, but they request to retire for the night because... We have to remember there are there are individuals on this jury that are that are over seventy years old. You know they have had a long trial at this point, and they and had a sixteen-hour so, day the day before. Exactly. So so they ask that night. This is day twelve to to retire. They, the ju- judge honors the request. He tells them that they're going to resume the next morning at eight thirty in the morning. Um, they come back at day thirteen now, and they start at eight thirty in the morning. They resume their deliberations, and it goes pretty quick because by nine thirty, this is only an hour into their deliberations. They it comes the the courts get the word that they now have a verdict, and so nine thirty a.m. day thirteen, they come in. By 9.45, they're, they're in the courtroom. Everybody is there. Obviously, it's a packed house. Every, you know, everybody's waiting to hear what this is. And the foreman hands off these six pieces of paper because every verdict has its own piece of paper. So they started with Tommy Ward. They get up and they read the verdict for Tommy Ward. And First, the clerk asks the jury foreman, on the count of robbery with a dangerous weapon, how do they find? Guilty. On a, the count of kidnapping? Guilty. And then lastly, on the count of murder in the first degree? Also guilty. So we have this. He's been found guilty on all three counts, and we still have Carl Fontenot sitting there hoping that only Tommy's going to be found guilty. So next... They address Carl Fontenot and 
asked the jury, how do they find in the count of robbery with a dangerous weapon? Guilty. Kidnapping? Guilty. And murder in the first degree? Also guilty. So what this means is that they've been found guilty of all three counts. And, Nicole, what happens next? Well... Obviously, the the courtroom is is kind of a mess. We have, you know, Tommy Ward visibly gets very upset. He's crying hysterically. He can't, you know, he's shaking. Carl doesn't have a reaction to these to these verdicts. Um, the ju- judge declares a fifteen minute recess. He tells the jurors to go and relax, and that they would return for the penalty phase because they have convicted all these two kids of these three crimes each. But they also have to decide whether or not they will be given life in prison or the, the death, death penalty. penalty. Because yes, it's a death penalty case, but the jury gets to decide. I didn't know this moving in. I this case surprised that. For me, I, w- I thought that if it was a death penalty case, that once they were found guilty, then it was automatically assumed it was going to be a death penalty case. But actually, it just means that the death penalty is, is a on the table. And so, in moving from the verdict to the penalty, in the penalty phase, um, in order to get the death, a death sentence, the state has to prove one of three things, and that is that one, the murder has been especially heinous or cruel. That it has, too, been committed to prevent the victim from identifying the perpetrators of a felony. Or that, three, the defendants are a continuing threat to society. So one of those three bits have to be met by the state in order for them to be given the death penalty. And it's, so at this point, they're actually allowed to bring in more, more testimony to prove those Absolutely. Because the state wants them to be executed. They want to go for for this ultimate uh, penalty. Yeah, and so both sides get to present witnesses. They Those witnesses get to be cross-examined. Um, there will be more sets of closing arguments, another deliberation by the jury. Um, and like the verdicts, a death sentence would have to be unanimous. So... You know the jurors are not done. They have found uh, them guilty on all on these six accounts, but we still now have kind of another set of of little mini trial things that have to happen. And so, and so, what are the high points of of this uh, penalty phase? Well, the biggest thing that happens is that uh, Bill Peterson starts, and he brings. What his witness in, who is this woman by the name of Joanne Price. And Joanne Price goes on to talk about this situation that happened on July 30th, 1984, which is three months after Denise Haraway was murdered. Um, she says that she was threatened in her car and attacked by Tommy Ward and another man who resembled Fontenot. And she goes on to talk about how she was afraid for her life and she she basically is is identifying the two of them as the people who did this to her. At this point we have kind of a a a, a show of emotion from Carl Fontenot who kind of yells out liar in the in the courtroom and you know calls calls her some names and we have a juror who kind of falls apart and a juror who begins to sob uncontrollably so at this point the judge asks 
do do you guys need a recess? Obviously, they give they give the jurors a recess. You know, I think what we're seeing is just kind of a, a group of jurors who have been worked to the bone. You know, so the defense attorneys begin to. They hear, you know, there's this recess that has happened. The the juror is kind of is able to to get herself together, and they immediately think of how they are going to cross examine this this individual who has said that she was threatened by Tommy and Carl, and and what they come up with is that you know Jeanette's husband Mike Roberts. He we've talked about them a ton. Tommy worked with Mike Roberts and that they get a hold of him and immediately want him to say or to find out not to say they want to find out was Tommy Ward working with you on the day that this woman is talking about and so that's the information that's what they're that's their tactic that they're going to do so the jury comes back and Joanne Price goes back on the stand and she is talking again about what has happened and she says that they threatened that they had a gun and that it was I mean, just really kind of giving details of this and that she was terrified and that they were in this truck. Again, this truck comes up. And and what wasn't brought up, which I found to be really curious, is here we are three months after the case and Tommy Ward is back driving around in this red and gray primer truck. Now, this is a, the one that nobody can tell us nobody where he got his hands on it. And no one has seen it, right? So so the investigation is in full swing. They know that there's a truck that's... that they are The whole town of Ada has been on the eye looking for this truck. People are calling in claiming that Tommy looks like this sketch of this person who was at JP's that night and apparently he's seen in this truck and this woman didn't even go to the police. Right. And so she never went to the police. Here's Tommy Ward in this truck. And nobody picks up on the fact that, like, how does Tommy Ward drive around Ada three months after the disappearance of Denise in a, in a truck, truck that, that they're looking for? The yeah. Right. So, but that gets dropped. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't come up. They do talk about during cross-examination that she never placed any charges that she wasn't able to, you know, clearly see who was in that truck. And they also didn't bring up that Tommy has a work alibi for this day because, unfortunately, though Mike Roberts said, yes, Tommy was working with us, there is no documentation of this. There's no time why card. why not still put him on the stand? And he can say that, you know, we don't work with time cards. We don't do that. I remember he was working that day. Here's why I remember it, whatever the reason is. No, I don't have time cards. No, I don't have any of that. You have to take my word for it. But at least plant that seed that this woman is lying. Right. And they choose not to bring him. They choose, you know, they choose not to bring him up. The state rests after Joanne Price. She, they're done. That's their only, that was their only, um, Witness. witness that they called. So then it's now the opportunity for the defense to see what they want to do. And they don't, again, call Mike Roberts. The only person that they call at this point is Tommy's mother. And they ask her to get up, and they are basically trying to kind of appeal to their sort of sensitive side of this jury and they're just saying you know miss ward got up and she just said i know he didn't do it that's all i know and they ask are you asking the jury not to take the life of your son and she said yes i am she stepped down and began to cry and that's kind of 
that was their only hope, I think, at this point. They did point out, of course, that there's no body, no pickup, that they did bring that up again, that he comes from, you know, Tommy comes from a loving, supportive family. He had a steady job when he was arrested. He, um... There's no physical evidence. He didn't have a prior record. They did bring that up in in this last in this during this um, hearing, but the only person that they brought up was Miss Ward, and so they then go into closing arguments very quickly again, you know. And Bill Peterson starts, and he goes on to say that. You know, Denise has suffered a grueling death and that Joanne Price has shown that if they were allowed to live, the defendants would constitute a continuing threat to society. Because we have to remember that that is one of the things that they have to prove, and this was how they have chosen to prove it, was this story from this woman. And they said, you know, we're going to ask for a, a sentence of death. And and at this point, we should also mention... Don Wyatt, Tommy's attorney, isn't even present at this hearing. He's actually got a family emergency. Someone in his family was very ill. And so he's not even there. George Butner is kind of taking over uh, for, for both of them at this phase. And so before the jury makes their decision, George Butner gets to stand up and say something as well. And his closing argument is pretty basic. He doesn't go on very long. He doesn't do a whole lot. He basically says that, you know, sometimes people die who shouldn't have died and that there are a lot of unanswered questions in this case, a lot of things, you know, that we don't know. And and that because of that, it, it wouldn't make sense to sentence these two to death, that while you have these unanswered questions, that that's not the right thing to do. But again here... Because the burden of proof is on the government, the government gets the last word. The district attorney gets to stand up and have the last word. So after George Buntner goes, uh, Bill Peterson gets up again and and basically, uh, you know, tries to create this fear in the jury. Like, these men did this to, to Denise. They almost did this to this Joanna woman. And if they ever, 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 ever get out of jail alive, they're going to do it to you or somebody you know. He doesn't quite say that, but that's kind of the implication. It's going to happen to somebody else if you don't put them to death. Yeah, I mean, he really just kind of, you know, he freaks everybody out, and then he goes on to this very, like, you know, courage is being scared to death, but saddling up anyway, and I'm going to ask you to saddle up. This very kind of, you know, this is hard, this is scary, but, you know, courage is being scared and doing the right thing anyway. He just really kind of hammers it, and it's these, it's very similar to what we saw in the trial. It's like the, the district attorney has given the last word, and they just really kind of, they, they ended on this kind of power. Powerful punch. And the jury has to, again, take some time to deliberate what they are going to do. And that same day, uh, we're on the, remember the same day when they came in in the morning at about 9.30 and gave their guilty verdict on all counts. They come back at 5.30 and they have a sheet of paper that has their verdict on it. They give it to the bailiff who gives it to the judge. And they sentence Tommy Ward to death. And each one of them has to say out loud that, yes, they agree with that verdict. Once they do that, they then give them the piece of paper which sentences Carl Fontenot to to death. And again, each one of them agrees that they uh, wanted him sentenced to death. And with that, both Tommy and Carl are now on death row. 
um, and they are set to be executed. And in the 80s, executions happened pretty swiftly after a decision was made for it to happen. That is not where this podcast ends. Um, That is definitely not where the story ends. When you get put on death row, pretty much as a matter of habit, the first thing that's going to happen is that you're going to file an appeal. Your attorney is going to file an appeal. So when we come back next week, we are going to talk about Tommy and Carl's appeals. And also we're going to talk about a discovery that happened that is really going to change everything that just happened in these two trials. Thank you for listening to Unraveled, Season 1, The Nightmare in Ada. Your hosts are Nicole Richards and Caleb Aring. Producing, mixing, and editing done by Caleb Aring and Matt Van Horn. Music by Broke for Free. Voice talent by Joe Eager. Tune in next week to listen to more of this case unravel.